Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. Gary Serodkowski is a Kentucky writer, a publisher, and editor who has his home in Fort Thomas, Kentucky, after traveling around uh, all over the United States and maybe the world, too. Um, he's um, a, a member of our Speakers Bureau at Kentucky Humanities and uh, has done some fascinating work that you would um, be intrigued to see. In fact, maybe, Gary, one of the best things we can do is not only let people listen to us, but maybe show some of your work. I don't know if we've ever done that before on our website. Uh, uh, but one of the things that you've done is, uh, in, is titled Outsider Baseball, an illustrated history of baseball's forgotten heroes. So tell me a little bit about um, how this idea got started. Uh, you you uh, told me that as a kid, you were a baseball fan, but you were, weren't uh, always uh, for the, the heroes of baseball, but some of the, the lesser known uh, baseball players. Yeah, that's right. I, I grew up in Northern New Jersey and uh, my father and my grandfather grew up Brooklyn Dodger fans. My grandfather was a Dodger fan going back to the 19, early 20s. And um, when I was growing up in the, in the 70s, the New York Yankees were the biggest team, and my father and my grandfather were generations of Yankee haters, so I became a Mets fan when I was a kid. And the Mets were terrible in the 1970s. Um, so when I would get together with my father and my grandfather, instead of talking about how the Mets were doing, because it was kind of depressing, my father and my grandfather would tell me about all the ball players that they saw when they were growing up. So my grandfather would tell me about people like Dazzy Vance or uh, Jersey Joe Strip. You know, they're not Babe Ruth or Lou Gehrig. You know, who who are these guys? So I'd go to the library and go through the old newspaper archives or baseball books and try to figure out who these old players were. So I, by default, I kind of got interested in the more obscure players because they all seem to have more of an interesting story behind them. And it's kind of interesting that uh, you, you did that as a kid, and you sort of, um, what? How did that turn into a book that was published in 2015 and now something else that you're working on that we'll, we'll get you to describe in a few minutes? Sure. I, I, was, uh, I went to art school. Um, I was always a, a painter, and I loved to draw. And uh, being a baseball fan, I always seemed to draw baseball players as well. Um, my first job when I was still a senior in college was uh, to do the graphics for Oriole Park at Camden Yard. And... Um, uh, that, is that indeed the, the, the most beautiful ballpark it, it keeps, uh, in, in the United States? It, it keeps getting rated the number <laughs> one, which, which is, makes me really, really proud because that was my first, uh, my first big job. Um, so I, after, uh, after I did that, I was able to go anywhere in the country, and I, I traveled around from city to city and um, uh, doing different design jobs. I did package design, props for Hollywood, all kinds of things like that. But th the one constant throughout everything was a relationship I had with my father. And we would talk you know, three, four, five times a week. You know, Sometimes it would just be for a few minutes. Other times it would be for an hour. But the one thing that always bonded us together was the history of baseball and our, our love of the, you know, the obscure players. So, you know, sometimes he would just call me up and he, he would just fire a, a trivia question at me that he had heard on the radio or something. And usually I got it right and he would mumble and hang up the phone. And other times we'd talk for hours. Um, but in uh, 2009, he passed away unexpectedly. And I was living out in Hollywood and none of my friends liked baseball. And uh, one night I was, I, I missed my father and uh, I 
was noodling around on my drawing table and I did a little drawing of a baseball player, made it into a baseball card format. And I'm not an internet person, but I, I just for the heck of it, I came up with a, I made a blog. I put this little card on there and then I had to write a story that went along with it because nobody would know who the player was if I didn't. And then the next uh, couple of days later, I did another one and another one. And next thing I know, I look at the, the, the hits that, the, uh, that show how many people go to it. And all these people started flocking to this, this little website that I did. And I got on ESPN and they did a little story on me. And it just, it just got this really big following. And in the meantime, I'm just doing my regular design work and, and things like that. And I'm just doing that in my spare time for fun. And it was just, uh, you know, the tragedy of my father passing away. And I, I missed him. And it just had brought me all these people that were interested in the game that I had never met before. But I was able to share that same love that I had with my father with all these other people that I didn't even know. And then um, over the years, I, I had people offer me book contracts, but I just never really wanted to do it. But right after I got married five years ago, I happened to pick up the phone and it was a, a fellow who was a literary agent in Manhattan. And he said, uh, you know, I've been following your blog for years and I know people have probably asked you to turn it into a book. Would you like to do it? And I said, sure, what the heck? And uh, within a week, I had a contract from Simon and & Schuster. And that's the book that came out. I just, <laughs> Why not was, start at the top? Yeah, it was just, I just got really, really lucky. Everything oh, wow. kind of fell together in the right place. Yeah. And um, uh, the book that I did, I illustrated it, designed it, and wrote everything. Uh, it's 240 pages, hardback. And uh, what I did was I created the book that I always wanted to find in the bookshelves in the library when I was a kid, or as an adult even. Well, it's a, a beautiful book. Thank you. Uh, it really is. And again, uh, everything that I'm looking at uh, is done by you. Yes. I mean, uh, you, you've crafted the, uh, the entire thing. An illustrated history of baseball's forgotten heroes. So it um, sort of begs the question, um, who are baseball's forgotten heroes? Well, I, I divided the book up into, I think it was seven chapters, but the, the first chapter, I wanted to start off with players that everybody had heard of. So I think the first guy that's in there is Sandy Koufax, the great pitcher for the Dodgers. You know, everybody knows what a great pitcher he was, one of the greatest left-handers of all time. And, uh, but what a lot of people don't know is that he started off at the University of Cincinnati, and he wanted to be an architect. He didn't want to be a baseball player. So when he signed with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1954, uh, he uh, made sure that the Dodgers bonus covered his entire schooling at UC because he didn't think he was going to be a player. He thought he wanted to be an architect and he wanted to make sure it was all taken care of. Um, uh, an odd thing that happened was because the bonus for him was so large at the time, major league baseball rules were if uh, the contract was over a certain point, they, they couldn't farm the player out into the minor leagues, he had to stay with the major league roster. So basically, Koufax just sat on the bench. The interesting thing was the person that got sent down to the minor leagues was a guy by the name of Tommy Lasorda, <laughs> who later went on to manage the, the Dodgers. Yeah, yeah. Wow, interesting. Well, um, tell me, uh, just uh, without me prompting you on all these names, uh, because some of them, as you say, are certainly names that we know. Uh, I just turned to a page that has Roberto Clemente, uh, Willie Mays, uh, uh, Jackie Robinson. Just talk about some of these uh, guys and uh, and then we'll, we'll uh, also get uh, to the other parts of the book uh, where we're going to flip to one uh, 
Harris Magelliard. Oh, that's an interesting. Uh, answer. Okay, well, we'll get to him. Okay, so uh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll start with uh, Jackie Robinson because uh, it was just the anniversary last year of I think it was the, what, the seventh, seventieth anniversary. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, close to that. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. of uh, his breaking into the major leagues. Yeah, and of course that has a Kentucky connection. A- absolutely, that's it, it, one of my favorite stories. Is uh, in 1945 when he was in the army, he was an army officer, or 1944. Um, he had just. Uh, been court-martialed in Texas, and he, a rap that he had beaten. The Army didn't know what to do with him. You know, I didn't know that either. What, what was that for? He uh, was, I believe it was in Texas. He was um, taking a, a, a bus that was on base, and it was an integrated base. Um, he refused to sit in the back of the bus. He was, a, he was a lieutenant at the time, and the bus driver told him to sit in the back of the bus. The Army at the time, all their buses were, were not, segregated? not segregated. Oh. So that was the... the yeah. The driver had no right to make him ask him to do that. You know, Jackie, being as headstrong as he was, refused to do it, and the MPs arrested him. Um, wow. They, they re- the base commander realized that this was a problem. You know, this it, it was a bad rap. Um, but somehow the charges kept getting pushed up the ladder. Um, half the army wanted to just get rid of it because Jackie got the NAACP involved and, you know, it just became a big... Was he playing ball at the time? No, Jackie Robinson was a a well-known college football player. Um, He played baseball in college, but he was, that wasn't his favorite sport. He loved football. Um, And of course, just like baseball, football wasn't integrated at the time either. So he wasn't able to play pro football. So when the war broke out, he he joined the, uh, the army and it was a big fight for him to get into officer candidate school. So he's on this base in Texas, and they court-martial him for sitting in the back of the bus. The Army wants to just hush it up. Meanwhile, his unit that he was training with, which was an armored cavalry unit, they got shipped out to Europe. He's stuck doing this, uh, this court-martial. Um, so he finally gets clear to that. He has a, a, a bad ankle from his football days, so he can't serve overseas. He's labeled as a troublemaker. The Army doesn't know what to do with him, so they send him out to a place called Camp Breckenridge in Kentucky. And so he's, uh, he's out there waiting for his paperwork to get processed, to get uh, out of the Army, because you know, he's, no, he's no good anymore. The war's winding down. So they make him uh, athletic officer at this remote base. And uh, one day he's walking past the baseball diamond, and he sees this, this uh, black player, and he's, he's throwing major league fastballs over the plate. So he sits down, and he watches this, this, this player, and player finishes up and he starts talking to Robinson. Now Robinson, like I said, was a college star. So people knew him, you know, he was a, a name if you followed college sports back then. So anyway, this, this, uh, this player, his name was uh, Ted Alexander. He was a pitcher in the Negro leagues. The two start talking and uh, Alexander asks Robinson what he's doing after he gets out of the army. He says, I don't, I don't know. He says, well, why don't you uh, talk to the Kansas City Monarchs, which is the team that he pitched for and gives them the address of, of the owner of the team and says, you know, because of your name, you'll get signed, you know, and you're a natural athlete anyway. So, so Robinson takes him up on the offer, and he, after he gets out of the Army, he calls up the Kansas City Monarchs, and he gets a, a contract. But it's interesting that that random meeting on an Army base, a remote Army base in Kentucky, started Jackie Robinson in professional baseball. And, of course, um, I have to tell you, that that's the first time I've heard that story. Or, or uh, I don't know if that has been... Um, I'm sure it was probably included in a biography at some point, and I do remember reading maybe a biography of many, many, many years ago. But the Kentucky connection that we uh, Kentuckians always think of is Happy Chandler. Oh, of course, and, yeah. and, and that that's sort of the obvious one. But this is mm-hmm. fascinating that you discovered uh, that there there is this other connection too. 
Yeah, Happy Chandler is one of my uh, one of my favorite figures in baseball as well. He was the, as far as I know, he's the first and only commissioner of baseball that actually played professional baseball. He played for a, a team in Lexington called the uh, Lexington Rios back in the 1920s. It was a real low-level minor league team in the yeah. blue gla- blue, bluegrass yeah. league. But um, yeah, he was. Uh, the, that's why they made him uh, commis- the second commissioner of baseball. Yeah. He had that baseball background. So that's your story about Jackie. Do, do you do you take that uh, farther uh, when in your book uh, to, it, to his? In uh, my book, I have the I have the story of his um, his first year in the minor leagues. Um, but I, I want to come out with a book on Kentucky baseball history, and so I was saving that Robinson yeah. story for that. So what 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 was his story in the minor leagues? Well, he was uh, signed with the uh, Montreal Royals, which was the Brooklyn Dodgers' top farm team at the at the time. Um, the 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 story and illustration that I have in my book, um, I'm from Northern New Jersey, and the f- opening day in 1946, the Royals were in Jersey City playing the Jersey City Giants, which was a New York Giants farm club, and so the first, it, I, I, being from New Jersey, I like that connection. That the the first in, um, the first black player in the major leagues in the 20th century took the field in Jersey City. Um, but uh, he actually had a heck of a first game. I think he hit a, uh, I think he hit a triple, had a couple of base hits and stole, stole two bases, I believe. Um, he just made an outstanding impression right from the start. And he was the spark that uh, brought the Royals to the, uh, um, what was called back then the Little World Series, which was the AAA World Series at the time. Um, there's an interesting story after the Royals won, won the last game of the series in uh, Montreal. The fans ran out of the out of the uh, you know out of the uh, the bleachers, ran onto the field, picked him up. Ch- first of all, chased him, and uh, and then picked him up and, and carried him out of the out of the ballpark. And there was a writer at the time that was up there, and he said it was probably the first time in history that a crowd chased a black man out of love instead of hate. It's just a yeah, really great line. Yeah. And um, Robinson's just such a tremendous figure, you know, besides just being an unbelievable athlete and a great ball player. I mean, what he did, the stuff that he went through in 1946 and 47 and 48, I mean, the stuff that that guy had to face as well as perform on, on, on field is just uh, is just one of my all time heroes. I, you just can't stop writing about that guy or find interesting things about him just who was uh, who befriended him uh, uh it was uh, um it was from louisville it was um uh, oh, reese Pee Wee reese yep. became his his confidant uh yes um and the, what do you know about Wee reese well, well Wee reese of course was the great dodger shortstop from from louisville um and um you know being from kentucky a lot of the uh about half the Dodger team at the time were, were, were hardcore Southerners. Um, and they were mostly unsure of what to do with Robinson. Not many were against it. They were just, it was change, more or less. Um, but a lot of the, a, a couple of the racists on the team looked to Reese because he was the team captain at the time and from Louisville. So they expected him to be a, uh, you know, in the same ballpark as them. He, he wasn't. Um, fortunately for, for Robinson. And because Reese was so well respected, a lot of the players that, that were on the, on the fence regarding having a black player play on the team saw him as a Southerner, yeah. as a respected ball player. He kind of turned that tide. Have you seen Dick Usher's uh, presentation of Pee Wee Reese? Uh, no. Dick is one of our Chautauqua actors. Oh, no, you should see. He does a great job uh, of portraying uh, Pee Wee Reese. And in his uh, performance, 
he describes all of that uh, very meticulously. And there's one part of his presentation where uh, when uh, Robinson was getting booed from the uh, stands, uh, the other players were calling him names, even his own teammates. And uh, there was an occasion where Pee Wee Reese uh, went over and just put his arm around him and patted him and pretended like he was saying something to him. And somebody asked uh, Pee Wee later, what did you say to him? He said, I didn't say anything to him. I just, I just, I just put my arm around him and mumbled some things. And, and, and that quieted the crowd yeah. and allowed them to continue the game. And yeah. uh, th- th- that's a great story, too. So I hope you get a chance to see that. Well, uh, wh- what are some of the other uh, uh, people that, I mean, it's, it's uh, full of, of stories. Uh, let, let's go to some of those uh, lesser knowns. That, uh, you mentioned uh, Harrison McGilliard. Yeah. He was a, a baseball player from California. And uh, this is back in the 19th, early 30s. And he played a year or two of minor league baseball. He just he wasn't very good, uh, not to make, you know, not, not, to be, not to make it to the major league. So he, he quit, took a job, went to college. And in his spare time, he played semi-pro baseball. Um, he played for a, a Japanese-American team out in Los Angeles. And uh, at the time, in 1935, the Tokyo Giants, which was the first professional baseball team in Japan, they sent a team over to tour the United States. They actually played in, uh, in Louisville um, and in Cincinnati. Um, and they toured the country to try to learn American baseball the way the Americans played it. Um, so when they were in Los Angeles on the West Coast, they played this, the, the Japanese-American team that Harrison McGilliard played for. And while before the, the Tokyo Giants went back to Japan, they signed a couple of American players to come over and play in the, in the Japanese league, which, the, which they started in 1936, the following year. Um, so McGilliard went over there, and uh, he quickly learned Japanese. He knew a little bit of Japanese from when uh, when he played with in, in Los Angeles, but when he went over to Japan, he played there for I believe two two years, two and a half years. Um, he learned as much Japanese as he could, and he really loved the culture. But this was right before World War II. Um, by 1939. Uh, the, he could see the way the winds were blowing and the, the way the Japanese were starting to treat Americans. So he wisely uh, took his family and went back to the United States. But he, I think he won two batting championships in, in the beginning of the Japanese leagues in 36 or 37. Um, during World War II, because he knew Japanese, he uh, joined the American Counterintelligence Corps and he uh, went to um, the Pacific and he would interrogate Japanese prisoners. Well, there's a there's a great story that he's on and I, I can't remember which which battle it was, um, but he's in, interrogating a couple of prisoners, and he recognizes one of the catchers that he played with uh, when when he played in 1936 and 37 in Japan, and he would he, he, he there's a bunch of stories of him asking the Japanese players, have have you heard of what happened to that great American baseball player, uh, Bucky Harris? See the Japanese couldn't pronounce his name Harrison McGilliard, so they. <laughs> reduced it to Bucky Harris, who was another major league player. That, so there's a yeah. lot of confusion with that. So he would ask these, these Japanese prisoners, and some of them would have, have crazy uh, uh, stories, propaganda stories. They would say, oh, he uh, stayed in Japan, and now he, he's with us now, and he's fighting for Japan, and you know, all these things. And he, but you know, he wouldn't tell yeah. them that he's sitting right across the table from them. <laughs> um, real interesting yeah. character. Yeah. Well, I, I have to tell you, or and ask you, I'm just, just flipping through the book, um, and I, I come across a name that I, I recognize, but not as a baseball player, and that's George H.W. Bush. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yale's Fancy Dan. So, yeah. so tell us that story. Well, he, uh, 
he was an aviator and naval aviator in World War II. And after he got out of uh, after the war ended, he went to went to Yale, and he he was a huge baseball fan. So he tried out for the baseball team, and he was made made the team. He was the starting first baseman for I think two two years, and both those years. He, the Yale team went to the College World Series, which had just started up. He played in the first two College World Series. Um, he uh, it wasn't. I think he only batted about two thirty or something like that. He wasn't wasn't a great player, but his fielding at first base was just outstanding. So they kept him in the lineup. The Yale coach at the time, I believe, was a fellow by the name of Ethan Allen, who was a former major league player, and he called. Uh, George Bush, Yale's fancy Dan because of his <laughs> footwork and everything around. But when he was president in the United States, he would keep a, uh, a well-oiled first baseman's mitt in the top drawer of his desk in the Oval Office, just in case. <laughs> and the stories are fascinating, Gary. They really are. And, uh, and I hope that uh, people listening will contact you, contact us uh, about your availability. And you're doing, you're doing something else now that you, and let me just ask you this. Do you, um, do you do any uh, artwork in your presentations? Are you, are you? Yeah. You know, I, I used to, um, I, I get confused when I have slides and stuff going yeah. on. So I used to just do my talk. Um, I would, I would just stand up and talk, but everybody would say, well, you, you're an artist too. You should show yeah. drawings. So, uh, so I, I came up with a, a slide presentation, which, which I do now. Um, and I also have, um, large uh, printouts of my illustrations and so I'll put those around uh, around the uh, the room so people can look at those before and after yeah. and it's, it's, so it's not just something that's projected it's and you're publishing now uh, how, how do you describe this uh, yeah it, it's a it's a journal which is an extension of my book um, it, it's uh, I think it's uh, 80 pages or something like that um, and I call it, it's called 21 and it's the illustrated journal of outsider baseball. So it's kind of a takeoff of, of my book. It's the same obscure players or, or famous players like the, the cover, the cover, um, figure on, on this edition is Lou Gehrig. So instead of telling the story of when he was with the Yankees that everybody knows about, I tell the story of when he was at Columbia university in New York, um, which, which made him as a, as a player. Um, but because it's, uh, not a book, I'm able to do some longer format, uh, stories in it as well as little features like I'll I'll, uh, I'll show how I do my illustrations I'll, I'll take it from a pencil drawing and bring it all the way through the color and and show how that that happens or the research that I do that that go into the stories are you still a baseball fan oh yeah absolutely and how do you think the game has changed and has it been good for baseball um they keep trying to make it faster or flashier um, but it's gotten slower. Yeah, you know, when they have this this replay, which takes the, the... The beauty of baseball is it's a very fallible sport. People make mistakes, and that's just part of the game. And umpires are included in that, not just players. Umpires make mistakes because they're human, and that's just part of the game. When they take the ruling away from an umpire and put it on a camera and send it to some guy in a small office in New York to make a decision on, it, it takes something out of the game. And... You know, I've been a fan where I'm rooting for, for the Cincinnati Reds or, and, and there's a close play and you know the umpire got it wrong, but there's nothing you could do about it. That's just part of the game. And uh, I've been in games too where it flips the other way, where I know that, that guy was my, the guy on my team was out, but the umpire missed it. So you know, it falls both ways. And, and when you take that out, it slows the game down. It makes people jaded that they have to sit there and they don't know what's going on. And is the atmosphere in big league baseball um, still 
the same? I mean, is is the food better? Is the camaraderie among the fans? Uh, uh, are, are they? You know, what's it? Like? Yeah, I have, I have to tell you that uh, many years ago, I was a, a Houston Astros fan and and attended a number of games. In fact, they they did really well the year that I followed them so closely. Um, Nolan Ryan and and mm-hmm. that group and. Um, um, it, it was fun, but I but I've just heard recently from others that, in fact, I just heard uh, Keith Hernandez, who now does play by play for the Mets, I believe, and he's he's sort of uh, looking at other aspects of his career. Uh, he was on uh, NPR uh, this last week, and I think I just heard him promoted. Uh, he's going to be on Wait Wait Don't Tell Me, one of the uh, uh, NPR programs, or or one of those other programs where he's going to be a guest. But um, he said that uh, he can see it. And, of course, he, he was such a player. And, and you would think that he uh, wants to rally uh, people to baseball. But he's, he's the one that uh, suggested that it's gotten so slow uh, that uh, pitchers, they're so good these uh, days, they'll get a, a, a two-nothing count. And uh, for whatever reason, they'll always take it to 3-2. And and then then something happens, but it takes so long to get from two nothing to three two, and it's almost like it's orchestrated or something. So he says, you know, the the, the, the it, it's not good for the fans. It's not good for the game. It slowed it down. Yeah, it, it's it's a multitude of things that kind of combine to make it that way. Like a pitcher taking taking a, a, going to account like that. Years ago, before the nineteen seventies. If you started a ball, if a pitcher started a ball game, you were expected to pitch nine innings. <laughs> oh, you know, of course, you didn't have somebody. If you couldn't finish it, there was some either you hurt yourself or you were weak, you know, and, and if you got relegated to the bullpen, that was you're on your way out the door. You know, that all changed in the 70s and 80s when Keith Hernandez started to play. Um, so so back uh, back before Hernandez's time, you know, players would conserve their energy. A pitcher was, like I said, was expected to go to distance. So you didn't want to, you know, bring, bring a count out to, to five or, you know, throw seven, seven balls to each batter. I mean, that was, you, you wear down. Now pitchers don't have to worry about that anymore because there's 18 guys in the bullpen that could come in. And a pitch, it's rare when a pitcher lasts past six innings. So, you know, the game changes that way. Um, you know, it was different two years ago, too, because there was, until the 1950s, you know, there was no prof- – professional football wasn't very big hockey nobody really followed that basketball forget about that that wasn't around um you know except in limited places baseball was the only game in town so you know either you went to the movies at night or you went to a baseball game there was really nothing else to do you know television wasn't wasn't huge yet you had radio but people wanted to get out of the house so you went to a baseball game you know um and then you know nowadays you have so many sports that that pay pay well professionally it, it kind of drains the whole pool of talent and plus there's twice as many teams in the major leagues as there were back in 19 you know 60 uh, 1960 so all those things combine to make it a different game but it's still essentially the same game Gary Severikowski uh, is a, uh, a Kentucky native now, or a Kentucky um, um, citizen. Yes. Not, not quite a native, but uh, <laughs> you don't have to stay here long to be a native. Uh, from uh, northern Kentucky and uh, is here uh, in our state, and we're glad that you are. Uh, a fascinating conversation and the work that you're doing. And 
and we hope that uh, more people through uh, our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau get to hear uh, your expertise and, and see your illustrations. Uh, we appreciate you stopping by. Thanks for having me. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Thank you.